Comrade soldiers of the Red Army, the capitalists of England, America, and France are waging a war against Russia. They are taking revenge on the Soviet peasants and the Workers' Republic because she overthrew the power of the landlords and capitalists and set an example for the peoples of the rest of the world to follow. With money and munitions, the capitalists of England, France, and America are helping the Russian landlords lead their armies from Siberia, the Don, and the Caucasus against the Soviets, seeking to restore the power of the Tsar, of the landlords, of the capitalists. Vladimir Lenin. Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 185, The Russian Civil War, The Beginning. Last time, we covered the background to the Russian Civil War. Today, we begin things in earnest. The year is 1917, and the month is November, and the Bolsheviks have just taken control of the Winter Palace and ousted the provisional government. While many of the members of the government are now in Bolshevik hands, one is missing, namely Alexander Kerensky. His flight from the palace is one that movies are made from, likely a tragic comedy in this case. Kerensky knew the jig was up in Petrograd, and his only chance to stay in power was to leave the city and gather an army to retake it. He thought that the Bolsheviks were a minor power with little going for it. The problem he came up to was that they had disabled all the Russian cars in the area. Kerensky went to the American embassy for help. They loaned him a Renault under the promise that it would be returned in a few days. At the same time, his aides had found a working Pierce Arrow car with the Renault and its American flying flag in the front and the Pierce Arrow behind it. Kerensky hightailed it out of town toward Gatchina. It gets stranger from here. A number of Kerensky's ministers are holding themselves up in the Malachite chamber of the Winter Palace on November 7, 1917. Defending them were a few cadets and the 1st Petrograd Women's Battalion. The Bolsheviks told them it was time to surrender, and if they failed to give up, a Red Lantern would be lit, and the cruiser Aurora would start shelling the Winter Palace. Well, first problem was they couldn't find a Red Lantern. They eventually found some purple flares, which they set off causing the Aurora to begin firing at 6.30 p.m. Another problem, they were blanks. Then the guns at the fortress of Peter and Paul were ordered to fire on the palace, but because of their condition, they didn't work. By 11 p.m., though, they were operational and 33 shells were fired, but only two hit the target, causing minimal damage. But it did have an effect. The women's battalion got up and left while the cadets fired their machine guns into the dark, hitting nothing. Finally, the Bolsheviks came towards the room with one cadet standing bravely in front of the door. In an act of kindness, he was just pushed aside, and the Reds entered the room, and everyone remaining there was arrested. Six casualties were all that occurred during the first stage of the revolution and ensuing civil war. As Lenin was quoted as saying, the party had, quote, found power lying in the streets and simply picked it up. Now the fighting began in earnest, and is why I believe the Russian Civil War began the day of the taking of the Winter Palace. 
In Moscow at noon on November 7th, the Bolsheviks began to gather, forming a military revolutionary committee. 50,000 men, known as the Red Guard, captured the Kremlin. On November 9th, the Committee of Public Safety with 10,000 men stormed the city center, recaptured the Kremlin the next day. Lenin ordered more men to be sent to Moscow, and by November 13th, they had taken the Kremlin yet again. A few hundred Bolsheviks had died, with no clear number of how many of their enemy had. In Petrograd, General Krasnov's Cossacks had been beaten back at Polkova Heights outside the city, which ended Kerensky's attempt at recapturing power. Problems were beginning to become apparent to Lenin and his followers. First off, they were still at war with Germany and their allies. Secondly, with the Russian Empire collapsing, Ukraine, Latvia, Estonia, and Finland declared independence. Third, the winter was setting in and the people were hungry. Sides were being picked, some siding with the Bolsheviks and others against them. The whites began to form, but the problem was some were monarchists and many were not. As I've mentioned in the previous podcast, the one thing that brought them together was their hatred of the Bolsheviks. Because of the differences of opinion and lack of one clear leader, they had no real political plan or platform as opposed to the Bolsheviks led by one man, Lenin. Lenin, for his part, along with Leon Trotsky, had been planning for a civil war for years. As Robert Service wrote in his book, A History of Modern Russia, quote, after 1917, too, Lenin and Trotsky used class struggle and civil war as interchangeable terms, treating expropriations of factories and landed estates as part of the same great process as the military suppression of the counter-revolution. They created a committee known as the Sovnarkom, which was formed shortly after the October Revolution in 1917. The Snovnarkom was to guide the Bolsheviks through the Civil War into World War II. But of the 16 original members, only five died of natural causes. The rest were murdered during the Great Purge of the late 1930s. In December of 1917, the Bolshevik army invaded Ukraine to mixed results but it was followed by a victory and a skirmish over a Cossack army in the Don region in January of the following year. This victory was assumed by Lenin to be the end of the Civil War, an assumption that was obviously incorrect. In February, with great confidence, Leon, or Leon Trotsky yes, and, and Vladimir Lenin began building the Workers' and Peasants' Red Army. Not so much to fight in a civil war, but to prepare to begin the communist revolution in Europe with an aim to head right into Berlin after World War I ended. But in May of 1918, Lenin realized that the civil war was just getting started. The Socialist Revolutionary Party set up what they claimed to be the legitimate government in Samara. General Alexiev and Lavra Kornilov were putting together an army of volunteers in the South. Admiral Kolchak was doing the same in mid-Siberia. General Yudenich was working on gathering his army in the Northwest. On March 3rd, 1918, Grigory Sokolnikov, representing the Russians, signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, 
which was a brutally harsh treaty that Lenin was eager to have put into place. It got the Russians out of the World War as promised with the idea of freeing up a large number of troops for the coming civil war. Things, though, were looking very ominous for the Bolsheviks. The British and French were really pissed off with the former landing troops in Archangel and Mirmansk and the latter landing a naval garrison in Odessa. The Turks were on the move as well in the Transcaucasus, with the Japanese and Americans landing in the Far East. The Bolsheviks had control of a landmass, according to Robert's service, quote, reduced to a size roughly the same as medieval Muscovy. It seemed that the Bolsheviks' control over Russia was very tenuous at best. Now, you add to that, you have the Czechoslovak Legion, who was supposed to be shipped off via the Trans-Siberian to the Far East, where they would head through America back to fight with the Allies against the Germans. Problem was, the Bolsheviks, and in particular Trotsky, did not trust them and vice versa. The Chelyabinsk Soviet tried to disarm the Czechs unsuccessfully, leading to a greater distrust of the communists. They headed back to the Urals and Volga, where they crushed the Red Army on the way to Samara. Adding to the Czechoslovaks were a number of Serbian prisoners of war, which swelled their contingent to about 35,000 men. This might not seem like much, but these were elite soldiers, more than capable of defeating far larger armies. Trotsky was given the task of taking care of this dangerous group, especially when they took control over Kazan in August of 1918. Leon's organizational skills to build up the Red Army is legendary. One of his early orders was to have any deserter captured to be shot on the spot, including diehard communists. This, according to service again, quote, endeared to Imperial Army officers whom we encouraged to join the Reds. Not only this, but Trotsky went from legion to legion on a train by horse, I mean, just over and over, and to encourage them in their struggles against the whites. This helped him to recapture Kazan from the Czechs and the troops led by the Socialist Revolutionary Komuk Council in September. They pushed this group all the way back to the Urals, which at first seemed a positive movement until they met up with Admiral Kolchak's army in mid-Siberia. Kolchak and a number of his officers rounded up the Socialist Revolutionaries and had many of their council leaders arrested. This ended this group's part in the Civil War, never to be heard from again. Kolchak now took control of this powerful army and was declared the supreme ruler. They headed west, started in Omsk, heading into the Urals, taking Perm in December. Their goal was Moscow, and they seemed primed to achieve that target in 1919. A big break came the way of the Bolsheviks, which was ultimately to prove critical to their eventual triumph, and that was the defeat and surrender of the Germans, ending World War I. Lenin immediately tore up the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. They began to build up Bolshevik support in the regions that they gave up, like Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and Ukraine. Before this stroke of luck occurred, Lenin was giving the Cheka, the secret police, greater leeway in dealing with their political rivals. Many of the socialist revolutionaries still around in Mensheviks were rounded up and killed. 
On July 17, 1918, the Romanov family was slaughtered in Yekaterinburg. Back to Robert Service, who writes, quote, Lenin, Trotsky, and Zhuzinski believed that overkilling was better than running the risk of being overthrown. But despite all of this, the entire Bolshevik revolution could have exploded on August 30th. Lenin was at a meeting of the industrial workers and the Mikhailson factory in Moscow when three shots rang out with one bullet hitting Lenin in the neck, one in the shoulder and one missing him. Had Lenin had died at that moment, it is entirely possible that the Bolshevik revolution would have fallen apart. There are many factions within the Bolsheviks. Many despised Trotsky, hated Stalin, so a split might have occurred. History would have been very different if the assassin was successful. If you noticed, I didn't mention Fanny Kaplan as the assassin, as I believe that she might not have actually been the shooter because she was functionally blind. I do believe that she was part of the plot, but served as a scapegoat. Whatever the truth is, the shooting instigated one of the atrocities of the Russian Civil War, a period known as the Red Terror. The beginning of this part of the war supposedly was initiated by the successful assassination attempt on Petrograd Cheka leader Moisey Uritsky by Leonid Kanzgizer on August 18, 1918. But it really got into high gear with the attempt on Lenin's life. While he was convalescing, Lenin sent out the order, quote, it is necessary secretly and urgently to prepare the terror. According to a Bolshevik report, quote, in Kharkov, there were between 2,000 and 3,000 executions in February, June 1919, and another 1,000 to 2,000 when the town was taken again in December of that year. In Rostov-on-Don, approximately 1,000 in January 1920. In Odessa, 2,200 in May through August 1919, then 1,500 to 3,000 between February 20th and February 21st. In Kiev, at least 3,000 in February through August 1919. In Ekaterinodor, at least 3,000 between August 20 and February 1921. In Armavir, a small town in Kuban, between 2,000 and 3,000 in August through October 1920. The list could go on and on. The person given the charge to help lead the Red Terror along with Dzerzhinsky was a Latvian known as Jan Karlovich Berzin. Berzin came up with the methods of execution of hostages, recovering deserters, and putting down peasant rebellions. In March of 1921, he was responsible for the pursuit, arrests, and liquidation of the Russian soldiers involved in the Kronstadt Rebellion, something I'm going to talk a little bit more about in the next episode. He would get his comeuppance as he was also killed during the Great Purge in 1938. The real horror of the Red Terror was the mass tortures of perceived enemies. While reading of them in my research of the Civil War, I was absolutely appalled at the utter brutality of the torture. The acts were so horrific that I'm actually not going to share them in this podcast. The reason for the Red Terror has been up for debate amongst historians, but the majority seem to believe that it was necessary for the Bolsheviks to create it because of the lack of support from the majority of the people of Russia. 
According to Orlando Figes, quote, Lenin's violent seizure of power and his rejection of democracy. The Bolsheviks would be forced to turn to increasingly to terror, to silence their political critics and subjugate a society they could not control by other means. So far, I've been focusing on the Red Terror, but at the same time, the Whites had their own against the people of Russia. The Whites seemed to focus on Jews as they believed that they were the majority of the members of the Bolshevik leadership. Mass murders of Jews occurred throughout the areas controlled by the Whites. There was a difference between the two terrors, as was pointed out by Nicholas Wirth in his Black Book of Communism. Quote, the Bolshevik policy of terror was more systematic, better organized, and targeted at whole social classes. Moreover, it had been thought out and put into practice before the outbreak of the Civil War. The white terror was never systemized in such a fashion. It was almost invariably the work of detachments that were out of control and taking measures not officially authorized by the military command that was attempting without much success to act as a government. If one discounts the pogroms, which Denikin himself condemned, the white terror was most often was a series of reprisals by the police acting as a sort of military counter espionage force. The Cheka and the troops for the internal defense of the Republic were a structured and powerful instrument of repression of a completely different order, which had support at the highest level from the Bolshevik regime. The Red Terror officially executed 12,733 people, but estimates go from around 300,000 to over 1.5 million. How many were really killed will never truly be known. The next area of concern for the suffering of the average person throughout the soon-to-be-formed Soviet Union was food. The first goal of the Bolsheviks was to feed its ever-growing army. In the spring of 1918, they had an estimated 1.6 million soldiers. By the end of the year, it was over 3 million. As you might guess, they weren't getting much of a donation of food from the peasant farmers. So they basically had to take what they wanted, leaving scraps for the people who grew the food. And I'm going to again go over this a little bit more in detail next episode. But in May of 1918, the Bolsheviks formed the Food Supplies Dictatorship, which divided up the country into provinces and subdivided into districts, with each one having quotas that they needed to deliver to the government. The quotas were basically fiction. They were guessed at and were way overestimated. So the actuality of what happened is that the People's Commissariat of Food Supplies just took whatever they wanted, leaving the peasants without any food of their own. The black market flourished, but if you were caught, you were executed without a trial. The peasants, who the Bolsheviks hoped would stay on their side, were, as you might imagine, furious. But what could they do? As I mentioned in the previous podcast, oftentimes family members were held hostage or some executed if they hesitated. The Red Terror did its job, but at a tremendous cost to the people. Within the towns where the Bolsheviks had their biggest support, it was estimated that only a third of their diets came from government supplies. The rest had to come from the black market. Money, though, at the time had no meaning. According to Robert Service, the currency had depreciated to just 
0.006% of the pre-war value. Everything had to be done in trade, whether it was something you made or stole. Prostitution of women was rampant. Still, because of the area that the Bolsheviks control, they had more supplies than the whites who were about to get it in a big way. One thing that struck me in researching the Civil War was how disciplined the leadership of the Bolsheviks was. Lenin, Trotsky, Dzerzhinsky, Sverdlov, Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Bukharin were in agreement with all major issues. They were also very good at recruiting members to the Communist Party, which grew from 300,000 in 1917 to 625,000 in 1921. Because of the war, the form of government began to change. The original idea was for the Central Committee to rule the country. But because many of the members were out fighting, they created two additional institutions, the Politburo and the Org Bureau. The Politburo was to decide the major issues to face the country, with the Org, Org Bureau to handle party issues. The original members of the Politburo were Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, Kamenev, and Krestinsky. Most of them got along except Stalin and Trotsky. Lenin had his hands full with the two, especially over the issue of using old Tsarist commanders. Stalin hated it, but Trotsky made it clear that they needed their experience if they were to have any chance of winning the war. Trotsky won out as he instituted the policy of taking officers' families hostage to keep them in line, along with having a political commissar attached to every officer. Well, this is where we will end things today. Join me next time as the whites begin their fight in earnest, as they begin to make major headway against the Bolshevik Red Army. So now, as always, Das Vidania is Pasibo Bolshoya.